Happy New Year and welcome to uh, 2024. It's uh, really lovely. I, I saw some of you at the uh, the concert that we put on in uh, Osgood uh, a few days ago, which was a lot of fun. Uh, we sang songs we don't sing on a Sunday morning there, which was great. So it was great to be there um, with Carl and with Patrick as well. So it was. Uh, but if I have, if I didn't see you there, it's great to see you. Uh, here today and well done for making it in you've already had your congratulations from Curtis but uh, it's always good to be affirmed and uh, you know particularly when it's kind of you know the first snowfall of the year Uh, so it's nice to know that um, our systems are all working our snow plow showed up and everything's as it should be Uh, we will be um, uh, remembering uh, the death of of our Lord after this sermon um, as we celebrate communion. So just as long as you have your your little um, cup and uh, wafer ready. Last Sunday our text was uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and we looked uh, we looked back we acknowledged 2023 and then we looked forward and we anticipated 2024 um, here at Cornerstone if this is your first time uh, we follow uh, the church calendar through the year so this thing called the revised common lectionary and uh, we're in this season as Curtis has already mentioned called epiphany and the word epiphany means manifestation everyone say manifestation and it's that and what that refers to are these light bulb moments that we have when realization dawns and you're like okay now i get it that's what epiphany means and we all seek epiphanies we all seek those moments when for example you realize how to fix a diy problem we had a dripping tap my dad came along we uh, we imported him from wales and uh, he uh, fixed a dripping tap that was an epiphany for me and uh, or maybe it's that moment where you first realize why you feel the way you feel suddenly you realize that is an epiphany Um, or when you get around to learning that song on guitar that you've loved for years and then you realize it's only three chords and you could have done this ages and ages ago that's an epiphany it's a manifestation it's seeing something for what it is Uh, in the days before imdb the internet what do you call it internet movie database or whatever it is so in the days before imdb or google you'd see someone in a movie and you knew that you'd seen them before but you couldn't think where and your only choice pre-internet was to sit there with like um a glazed look on your face as you're mentally shifting through or mentally sifting through your memories and movies until finally maybe minutes later or maybe weeks later you remember the name of the movie that you saw them in i still have a piece of music uh, that i was in old navy years ago i heard the song i know it's a daft punk song but i still don't know what the name of the song is but I still know exactly how the song goes. So that's how long I've had this memory unresolved. I haven't had my epiphany moment with that song yet. And, you know, I don't want to play the Gen X card. I am. I'm right on the border of Gen X and uh, Millennial. But 
if I'm honest, most Gen Zers will never know the joy of that glorious moment when you finally see that mo- that、uh, movie that you remember that person from, and you're like, "That is where I saw them before," and that is an epiphany. That's a manifestation. That seeing someone or something for who it truly is. And over this sermon series, what we're going to be doing is endeavouring to unveil or reveal. This、uh, this Jesus, who is a man of mystery, Jesus, man of mystery, will be looking for an epiphany. I'll be praying that you guys have an epiphany. We'll be approaching him from various angles and perspectives, and hopefully arriving at a place where we love this Jesus we worship even more. Or perhaps for you, you you're still not sure whether you believe in Jesus. Well, I pray that the Holy Spirit will reveal Jesus to you through the Bible, and that you can reach your own moment of epiphany where you see Jesus for who He truly is. And that's why we're calling this series "Jesus, Man of Mystery." Our theme phrase or verse for this series is taken one of our lectionary texts, not from today, but from a few weeks from now. And this is our theme text, which is the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. That's our goal that we will see this. Let's read it all together: the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. And I pray that you will experience the light of God shining in your heart to give you the light. Of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ, that you will have your own epiphany. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we humble ourselves before you. We ask that as we start 2024, we would make it our ambition, our goal to know you more, to see the knowledge of God's glory displayed in your face. But we know that we cannot really do this alone. So we ask that you would open our eyes. That you would illuminate our hearts and minds through the inspiration of your holy word, and all God's people say, "Amen." Our text this morning is Matthew chapter two,、um, and this is how it goes.、Uh, if you do have a Bible, please open up and、uh, read along. It's also on the screen.、Uh, it says this: After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, "Where is the one who has been born King?" Of the Jews, we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, "For this is what the prophet has written." But, but, but you, Bethlehem. This is this is him quoting. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, "Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him,、uh, report to me,、um, th- so that I too may go and worship him." After they had heard the king, they went. There on their way, and the star that they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary. They bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. 
Here we see two uh, vastly different responses to the Christ child, uh, to Jesus in these 12 verses. On the one hand, we see Herod the Great, who saw Jesus as a threat. And what do we do with threats? We remove them. We eliminate threats. And then on the other hand, we see the Magi, the wise men who saw Jesus as a treasure, a treasure to be pursued. And I wonder for you this morning, is Jesus a threat to be removed or is he a treasure to be pursued? Or maybe there's a third option that you don't see him as a threat and you don't really see him as a treasure. For, for you, perhaps he's more like a trinket to be used. You bring him out of the drunk, do- drunk jaw when it's convenient, usually to answer a prayer or to help you feel better. And when he's done his job, you quietly put him away again. What is Jesus to you? Is he a threat? Is he a treasure? Or is he a trinket? For Herod, Jesus was absolutely a threat. This is Herod the Great. He's the first in a line of kings who will also be named Herod. He was born in 73 BCE. He ruled from 40 BCE to 4 BCE. And you'll figure out as I'm saying this that, hold on a sec, wasn't Jesus, wasn't he alive when Jesus was born? The answer is yes. And that shows that our year zero, when we isn't, we're off by a couple of years, okay, when you think of when Jesus was actually born. Um, so he, he ruled from 40 to 4, 4 BCE. Uh, Herod's father was called Antipater, and Antipater was granted the title of procurator of Judea after the Roman conquest. Now, Herod the Great, which is our Herod that we're talking about this morning, he was appointed as the military prefect of Galilee by his dad, whose name was Antipater, which is why Herod the Great shows up in the story of Jesus, because Jesus was born in Herod's neck of the woods. And Herod the Great's task as the... um, as, as the military prefect, was to quell the lawlessness in that region, and he did it very well. And since he did it so well, he was then uh, granted a larger region to oversee. Now, one of the key moments of Herod the Great's reign was when a man called Antigonus, who was a Jew, was placed on the Jewish throne as a rival to Herod, because the Jews weren't a big fan of the Roman rule, so they wanted one of their own on the throne instead of uh, a puppet king of the Roman Empire. This then led to three years of fighting between Antigonus and Herod. Herod actually won, and he was granted the title King of the Jews as a result. And of course, this plays into our text. Now, after, after defeating Antigonus and receiving the title King of the Jews from the Roman Senate, you could understand why Herod would have been highly sensitive to um, anyone in his prefecture being called the king of the Jews because that was his title and he'd worked hard to uh, win it. So we get this sense that Herod wouldn't think twice about wiping out anyone who challenged his authority. He was a suspicious fellow. He was very strategic. He was brilliant. Uh, He was valued by the Romans, but he was rather despised by the Jews because he wasn't a Jew despite his title, the king of the Jews. He was actually a 
Idumean, uh, meaning that he was from Edom, which is the region uh, that traced its lineage back to Esau, the twin brother of Jacob. So the Jews came from Jacob, the Idumeans came from Esau, and this led to some ill feeling with the Jews. So Herod the Great knew that flexing his muscles was the only way that he could grip, keep his grip on the throne. So Herod's part in this Matthew 2 passage is one of intrigue and of cunning, of lying and manipulation. So we read words like this. These are Herod's words. Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Matthew 2 verse 8. So sure, Herod wanted to find the child. That much was true, but not to worship him because you do not worship a threat. You eradicate a threat. You remove a threat. And so to Herod, Jesus was a rival king of the Jews. He was another Antigonus. He was a threat. But as we know, Jesus isn't just the king of the Jews. He's the king of it all. He's the king of the universe. And actually, Jesus himself knew this, because later in his life, when faced with Pontius Pilate, Jesus said this, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. And then later in Revelation, we see something else that also backs up this whole idea that Jesus isn't just the king of the Jews, but he's the king of the cosmos of the universe. Um, It says this in Revelation 1 verse 5, Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. So Jesus is rightful place is over Herod the Great. But just like Herod, any time the kingship of Jesus comes face to face with our perceived self-rule, there is a battle of wills. There is a fight for supremacy. There are dueling claims, and ultimately one must bow to the other. As the old Highlander movie, hands up if you remember Highlander, back in the day, 1980s, 90s, Yeah, there's a line, there can be only one. And uh, that's exactly what happens, is that when when Jesus uh, makes a claim on our lives, he's saying there can be only one. And when he makes that claim, it can lead to a season in our life that is frankly quite ugly sometimes, because we do not naturally or easily bow the knee to anyone. We are we can be fighting against his rule in our lives. And if this morning you are at war with Jesus, if you see Jesus as a threat, then my prayer is that you will bend the knee to him, you will submit to him, and you will enjoy the experience of being part of his glorious kingdom. But this wasn't Herod's fate. For Herod, this fear of the, of the threat that Jesus represented actually led him to slaughter Uh, all of the baby boys in Bethlehem, as we see in verse 16 of Matthew chapter 2. And so it is with us that when we encounter the uh, claims of Jesus that he's the King of kings and the Lord of lords, we either submit to him, to his rule and reign in our lives, or we act out, we react against him, we eradicate the threat. Now, I know that some of the least happy people I know are those who've heard the call of Jesus, uh, who had the opportunity to bow down and worship him, to acknowledge him as king, and yet who ultimately rejected him. And maybe this is you. A little sidebar. Herod the Great, this so-called king of the Jews, he died. 
He's no longer the king of the Jews. In fact, and I wrestled with sharing this, this might be TMI, but uh, modern doctors think that Herod the Great died from a maggot-infested gangrene of the genitals. Why don't we say that all together? No, I'm joking. (laughs) A maggot-infested gangrene of the genitals. That's for real. That's how they think he died. So his remaining years on the throne, I'm assuming, were not very comfortable and were not what he thought they would be. And friends, the reality is that only the throne of Jesus lasts forever. Any sense of self-rule that you may have manufactured in your own mind will one day be shown to be a hollow husk. One day we will all die. I pray not in the same way as Herod, but we will all die. Our, our rule will, will be over. And the best thing that we can do while we have breath in our bodies and a beat in our heart is ironically to do what Herod said he would do, but didn't do. Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Herod's words were right, but his heart was wrong. To Herod, Jesus was a threat. And that brings us to the Magi, the wise men, for whom Jesus was not a threat to be removed, but he was a treasure to be pursued. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of Herod, Magi came from the east. Uh, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, "Where is the one who's been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him." Matthew two one to two. Now, a fun fact: Matthew's Matthew's account is the only one that mentions the Magi, and there is actually very little that we know about them. And so, this series is called Jesus, Man of Mystery. But the Magi are even more so. But here are a few things that we do know about the Magi. First of all, they were not in the nativity in the sense that they were not present when Jesus was in the manger. Instead, it's likely that they showed up months or even a couple of years later when Jesus was a child and living in a house. Secondly, we don't know if there were three of them. Yes, they have three gifts, gold, incense, and myrrh, but that, it it doesn't mean that there were three of them, but neither does it mean that there weren't three of them either. So to get a sense of who the Magi were, let's allow Blaine Eldridge to paint the picture. This quote is from his book, The Paradise King, which, uh, which I just so happened to be starting to read as I was uh, preparing this message. And as, as you listen to these words from Blaine Eldridge, I want you to start to get an idea of what the Magi would have been like. So you can have your eyes open if you want, or you can close your eyes. These are the words of Blaine Eldridge. Once upon a time, the Magi had been the law masters of the Persian Achaemenid Empire. They existed at a time when history and science were not yet separated from mythology and sorcery, not that they have been since. And so the Magi knew many things. They knew the names of their fathers back to the beginning of time. They knew the elements of divination. They knew how to consult spirits. They knew the machinations of empire and the movements of animals and the languages at the languages of the clans of the Uman Manda beyond the edge of the world. Even before the Persian Empire appeared, the Assyrians had posted seers all over the kingdom to watch the stars and advise the king. The Magi had improved upon that tradition. They were formidable. 
And so Darius the Great claimed that Amagus had once taken over the empire. And Herodotus, that the historian of Halicarnassus, seemed to also think so. Xenophon held the Magi in high regard, and Pliny the Elder feared them. And so by the time of our story here, the the Achaemenid Empire was a long time gone, some 300 years gone, and the Magi had been in decline. The Romans called all foreign priests, especially Zoroastrians, Magi, but for a long time, few of any repute had appeared. But they did here. They emerged on time as though slipping through a crack in history on the very edge of Rome's empire. The Magi traveled to Jerusalem. They met with Herod the Great, that general who had fought with Antony against Caesar Augustus, and asked him where the new king was. And Herod, unfamiliar with the relevant traditions, consulted his own law masters. From these, he heard the name of Bethlehem. And the Magi went there. And though they were strangers to the story of God, strangers to the covenants and the kingdom and the revelation entrusted to Israel, they followed the secrets of the stars and the last scraps of an ancient tradition and they were rewarded. They knew, and who knows how they knew, that if they could find the one who had been born king of the Jews, it would change everything for them. End quote. I love how Blaine Eldridge writes. He captures some of the mystery and the history of these magi, these wise men, these magi who through the sovereign leading of God, through their knowledge of astrology and astronomy and being aware of the prophetic writings, they knew when and where to be. The magi could very well have been or have known uh, yeah, the prophecy in Numbers Uh, where it says this, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. So where were these wise men from? Well, Dr. Brant Petrie uh, explains that there have been uh, three historic understandings of where these wise men may have traveled from. Number one, maybe they they were Persian from modern-day Iran. This is where Blaine Aldridge seems to be leading. Number two, they were Babylonians, maybe, which is modern-day Iraq. Or number three, they were Arabians, which is modern-day Saudi Arabia, Arabian Peninsula. And so, Dr. And so Dr. Petrie thinks that this third option of Arabia is the most likely, and he references Isaiah 60, verse 6, which is another one of our lectionary passages that Curtis has already read to us. It says, Herds of camels will cover your land, young camels of Midian and, and Ephah, and all from Sheba will come bearing gold and incense and proclaiming the praise of the Lord. That's Isaiah 60, verse 6. And so Dr. Petrie explains that the legend, that the yeah, the territory of Sheba was part of Arabia. Also consider Psalm 72, which is yet another lectionary reading from this week that says this, May the kings of Sheba and Seba present him gifts. May all kings bow down to him and all nations serve him. Um, and then verse 15, Long may he live. May gold from Sheba be given to him. May people ever pray for him and bless him all day long. That's Psalm 72. And so finally, Dr. Petrie explains that it's Psalm 72 that gave rise to the tradition or the understanding that the Magi were kings. 
So don't you think it's incredible that centuries before Matthew chapter 2, we have um, yeah, the prophecies that actually give us a location of Sheba that talk about the gifts that would be given of gold and incense and the fact that there would be kings who bow down before the one true king. That's all in the Bible. This morning, we've seen two very different responses to Jesus as we start this season of Epiphany. We've seen Jesus as the threat and Jesus as the treasure. And in both Herod and the Magi, we see very, two very honest, natural responses that Jesus elicits in people who encounter him, fear and worship. Because here's the thing, when you actually come to terms with the Lordship of Jesus, there are only two options, which are to silence him or to submit to him. And both Herod and the Magi understood the same thing, that there can only be one ultimate Lord, there can only be one on the throne, but Herod thought that he was the guy, while the Magi understood that the rightful Lord is Jesus, and they responded with worship. Herod said the right words, as as soon as you find him, report to me so that I may go and worship him. However, his actions spoke a very different and far more powerful message. The Magi, on the other hand, these mysterious men from the East didn't just say the right things, they responded in the right way. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary and they bowed and worshipped him. They saw Jesus, they bowed down, and they worshipped him. And just like Herod and the Magi, each of us need to make a decision whether Jesus is a threat or a treasure. Now, I do want you to hear this, that his claim for lordship is not on the table. It's clear throughout the Bible who Jesus believes himself to be. And both Herod and the Magi, on some level, accepted Jesus' claim that he is Lord. But their responses couldn't have been more different. The Magi traveled the world to find the one worthy of their worship. He was their treasure. While Herod had Jesus in his backyard the whole time and was willing to do away with him at a moment's notice, Jesus was a threat. However, today, as I've already mentioned, I believe there are people who view Jesus in a third category, He's not a threat. He's not a treasure. Instead, he's a trinket. He's that thing that we keep in the back of the drawer and that we've all but forgotten about, except when we need him and then we bring him out and we put him to use, whether it's answering our prayers, making us feel better about ourselves, or scoring a point in a political argument with someone else, and then we put him back in the drawer with all the other trinkets that we occasionally use and find useful. For us, maybe he's not a threat. He's not a treasure. He's a trinket. And so I look at Herod and I'm like, at least Herod saw Jesus as as a threat. At least he respected him. At least Herod put some thought into his estimation of Jesus. At least Herod was honest. But for those of us who who view Jesus as a trinket, I'm not sure where to go with this. Because we've got this offensively low estimation of Jesus, which we mask with a lukewarm sort of affection. And so we pull him out of the drawer and we pat him on the head and we put him to use and then we put him back. But the Lordship of Christ will not be hidden. 
His glory will not be held back. One day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every knee will bow. Those for whom Jesus is a threat, they will bow. Those for whom Jesus is a trinket, will bow. But it will be too late for them. They will realize far too late that the throne that they've been occupying rightfully belongs to Jesus. And he, but here's the beauty, that those for whom Jesus is a treasure will also bow. But they will have had years of practice. It will already be second nature because they've spent their lives bowing and worshipping. And their bowing won't be the fearful bowing before the judge of heaven and earth. Theirs will be the grateful bowing of humility and gratitude before their friend, their saviour and their Lord. And so I'd like us, as we end this message, I'd like us to take a few moments to respond to the Lordship of Jesus Christ by remembering what it cost for him to bring us into his family. Because here's the truth, Jesus doesn't view you as a trinket. He doesn't view you as a threat. He views you as a loved and a treasured individual, worthy of the price of laying down his own life. You know, Paul talks about God's plan of bringing us the boundless riches of Christ, the boundless riches of Christ. I'll say that again, the boundless riches of Christ. And these riches were made available to anyone who who places their trust in him, who believes that Jesus died and rose again to bring about a new creation. On the cross, what happened was that our nature became his and his nature became ours. Our sin was placed on him and his righteousness, his right standing with God was placed on us like a robe. As we look at the cross, we see the adoption papers being signed that we who have scorned and rejected Christ, who've seen him as a threat or as a trinket, can receive him as a brother and God as a father. Mm -hmm.